0: To Luke chapter twenty, and while you're getting there, um, again I'm grateful for a church that values our youth and able to take um, some time to let them get away. And and I just praise God that uh, Camp Victory really pursued things to make a way for our our youth to meet together. Uh, You know, with COVID things being being shut down and locked up so much. Um, those opportunities have been few and far between. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for some of our adult volunteers who don't normally work with our youth. Uh, John Downer is uh, hanging out with some middle school boys. That's Jules and his crown. And uh, as well as Sarah Kemper, who broke her arm and yet went anyway, so above and beyond the call of duty. So I'm grateful. So in our society we have a saying, or more, it's more of a question. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Right, have you ever heard that phrase? And, or someone that said that, or that's, a, that's a chicken and egg thing. Well, We oftentimes use that phrase to talk about uh, what order did something come in? Where did it originate, establish its viability, or establish its value or authority? Is it in its embryonic stage, that egg stage, where all the potential and possibilities, including reproduction, are all locked up in one egg and just waiting to burst forth in all the potential that's locked up there? Or is it in its full growth and developed state, where all the pet- potential and ability is now manifest? You can see it, including the ability to reproduce, particularly with a chicken and an egg, it's all realized in that bird. And typically, we, you know, talk about this and we say, it's a, it's a toss-up. It's a toss-up because we really don't know, um, you know, what, what came first, the chicken or the egg. They seem to be of equal value, equal importance, and discovering isn't possible unless it's just based in your own preference. Do you like omelets or fried chicken, you know? That's how we talk about that. Um, If we take a, let's just take this phrase literally, okay? What came first, the chicken or the egg? And we look at the biblical record in Genesis chapter 1 verses 20 through 23, the fifth day of creation. God fills the sea with uh, you know creatures that swarm in the sea, fish and all those creatures, and all the, the fowl above the air, you know, the birds, and all the flying creatures. He does not make them in their embryonic stages. He made them fully developed because eggs don't fly unless you throw them. Okay? You can ask a lot of junior high boys about that. But here's the thing. I mean, they're fully developed. The chicken came first, if you're looking for a biblical argument. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. You see, today, Jesus is going to ask some questions that will help reveal the nature of who the Messiah is. We sang earlier, Jesus, Messiah. And the embryonic origins found in a man who is the earthly originator of this promised Savior. That is David, son of Jesse, of the tribe of Judah, second king of Israel, after Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who was removed because of his disobedience. Now, if you know about David, he's far from a perfect man. But the Lord said he was a man after his own heart, and he was made a promise And you don't have to turn here. I think it's going to be on the wall behind me. But this is the promise that God makes to David about what he's going to do through his descendants. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build my house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son when he does wrong, and I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. And your throne will be established forever. Okay? Those are the seeds of the Messiah, of the Anointed One. And the question we're going to be talking about today is, who's greater, David, to whom the promise was made, or the Messiah himself? And that's what we're going to be digging into today. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into God's Word. So Lord Jesus, you are the Messiah, and uh, your name is above all things. Would you give us grace to see who you are, truly are in your Word today, and help us appreciate all that you've done through history and what you're doing even now in the lives of men and women, Lord. So use my words to draw us to yourself, edit out what's not of you, Lord, and help us to see you and help us to respond to you in spirit and in truth, in faith today. Lord, do your work in us, I pray. Lord Jesus, it's your name I pray these things. Amen. So, again, we're in Luke here, right? big picture. Jesus has come to Jerusalem, has the king of Israel, if you will, and he's acting like it. He comes in on Palm Sunday in this triumphal entry and the the leaders say you know Tell your people to be quiet. And Jesus says, hey, if I tell them to be quiet, even the rocks will cry out. He comes in, he cleanses the temple of the money changers. And along the way, he gets challenged in the temple courts by the religious leaders. Last week, we were in chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. And a group of Sadducees come and challenge Jesus about the resurrection and what's going to happen there. And Jesus answered them forthrightly from the scriptures and with authority to bring the full truth of what God is revealing, even through Moses. And it says at the end of that exchange in verse 40, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, Jesus had some questions of his own for these experts. And some may say, well, he's just putting them in their place. I don't know about that. But I know what he's trying to do is reveal more about who Messiah is, who he is. And if it's not for his original hearer's sake, then it's for our sake today. So, as we pick it up in Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44, this is what happens. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And so David gives a, I mean, excuse me, Jesus gives them a question to wrestle with. Okay, the Messiah is David's son is, his descendant his earthly descendant and yet david calls him lord why how does that work it's puzzling i mean we know about the greatness of david he's more than just a giant killer i mean first of all as we read it's to david whom this promise that his son would sit on his throne forever is made as we read in in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 11 through uh, 16. He is this foundational person, right? On whom God is going to establish this promise. Second of all, David is the prototype king of Israel. To whom every other king of Israel or Judah will be compared. If you read through the books of, of, of 2 Samuel and Kings, the commentary is, he did not do as his father did. Or he was or he did as his father David did. It's usually in relation to his heart towards the Lord. He did not follow him wholeheartedly. Or he he did follow him wholeheartedly. But David is the he's the standard. He's the gold standard from which every king will be compared. And again. God says that he's a man after his own heart, found in 2 Samuel thirteen, fourteen. And in our own thinking, typically the prototype, the foundational person, is the person who we view as the source of authority. The derived you know, the, the covenant was derived with David. He's the great thing or great person from which this covenant is derived. Now, let's flip it over to Jesus for a second. The very beginning of of this uh, gospel talks about the fact that Jesus is an earthly descendant of David. His mother, uh, Mary, and his stepfather, Joseph, are both descendants of David. You can read about that in chapter 1, verses uh, 27 and 69. When Gabriel comes to Mary to announce that she's going to be pregnant with the Messiah. He says, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Jesus, Davidic lineage. I'm sorry, this popping is driving me crazy. His his earthly claim and the evidence of God's is an evidence of God's faithfulness to David, and Jesus receives this title, Son of David, as a sign of him being the Messiah. In chapter 18, Jesus is going through Jericho. A blind beggar says "says this, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. So he says, yeah, that's who I am as the Messiah. From an earthly standpoint, I am his descendant. I am his son. And yet David... In quoting Psalm 110, 110, verse 1, Jesus quoting that from David, and David is being inspired by the Holy Spirit, as Mark 12:36 says. And I'm going to read... Well, I, I don't know if it's on the wall here. Yeah, it is. If you notice, the Lord is in caps. In our English Bibles, when you're in, in the Psalms, in the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord in capitals... It's denoting in the Hebrew that the word Yahweh, or Jehovah, is there. We're just translating it as Lord, or, but it is actually his, his name. So, Yahweh, that is the living God, says to my Lord, and that word is the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. In this case, the Messiah. So, Yahweh is saying to the Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So somehow, in this revelation from the Holy Spirit, David sees this exalted one as his Lord, even though he, he's his descendant. Now this is a psalm that was read at the coronation of uh, every king of Judah. And again, it points to a future king, a Lord who was much greater. Let me just fill you in a couple other things that happens in this particular psalm, if you get to read it maybe today. In verse 4, it says, He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? If you go to uh, chapter 14 of Genesis, he is this mystery priest of the most high God, who's the king of Salem, from which the word we get shalom, which means peace. So he's the king of peace. It's also where we think, we think it was Jerusalem, where that was. And number two, his actual name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. So just as Melchizedek was the king of peace and the king of righteousness, so is Jesus. You are my priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And there are a few other things about Melchizedek that are true. You can read about those in Hebrews chapter 7, that he seems to be without earthly origins and he has an indestructible life. And then at the end of this psalm, also in verse 6, it says, he will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. That person somehow is going to be the judge of all the earth. There's no other person that fills that role. There's no one that can fit that bill. Now, if you read the Bob this week, we put in a little fun fact about that. This particular psalm, it's the most quoted or most alluded to in the New Testament. And typically, it has to do with the fact that this this Lord is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Maybe an allusion to that would be uh, Col- uh, Colossians three one. It says, "Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God." So allusions like that all throughout the New Testament as well. So this has been revealed to David and he wrote this psalm about it. And ultimately, in looking at this and wrestling with this question, it reveals a greater reality about the Messiah. About who Jesus is as Messiah. That he is Lord, even over David. Now here's one of the things, I'm going to stop for a second here, one of the things I appreciate about David as being king. I don't think we realize what a heady thought that would be to be king. Where everything you say goes. If you say it, it happens. If you beckon it, it comes to you And I appreciate David's humility. You see, if you're a monarch with absolute power, it can oftentimes become all about you, all about what you do, all about your future, about your greatness, about — and you know we, we've seen that with many earthly rulers. That was the problem with Saul. That was the problem with many of David's descendants who would follow him. It became all about them. That's why Saul was removed from being king. Because Saul was more concerned about Saul's kingdom than God's kingdom. But David is more interested in God's kingdom than his own. And he saw himself as a tool in God's hand to be used to bring forth his kingdom And his accomplish his will. So, back to this point. Jesus is Lord even over King David. Number one, because Jesus was of divine origin. Back to Christmas. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel Gabriel coming to Mary. And the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born in you shall be called the Son of God. Yes, in this humanity, through Mary's line, he was a son of David. But through the Holy Seed of the Holy Spirit, he was literally the Son of God. Literally the Son of God. And again, we just celebrated Christmas, right? Where we focus a lot on that reality. But here's, here's something that I want you to think about. Here's something I want you to think about. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the scripture says that he was made like us in every way except that he was without sin. He was made like us in every way except he was without sin. So how does Jesus escape The sin nature being passed on to him. That of wanting to sin and being guilty of Adam's sin, if you will. It's by being virgin born. That sinful nature is broken. It's not passed on to him. So he doesn't have sins of his own to deal with, and he can come to deal with our sin. So he's greater than David because of his divine origin. Number two, he's greater than David because of his divine position. Again, let's go back to verse 42, quoting Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now this doesn't automatically happen. Jesus will go to the cross. He'll be resurrected and then he'll ascend to heaven. But to be seated at the right hand of God the Father means that he is second only to God the Father in authority. He is his vice-regent, if you will. And no other person, no other angel is ever given this authority. You can read about that in Hebrews 1.13. And he will reign... From that position until all things are put under his feet. Until they all come under his submission. And I look forward to that day. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty five. And ultimately, again, talking about his divine being, it points to his deity. Switching to a different gospel for a second. The beginning words of John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word... Was with God and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. So, what's he doing right now? What's he doing right now at the right hand of God? Well, I'm going to borrow from the Apostle Paul just to give us a few things to think about. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. Folks, he's holding us together right now. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In light of this description, I think it's fair to say that Jesus is greater than David. And he is right in calling him Lord. Because he is the author of creation. And in him all things hold together. Is that driving you crazy? Okay. Together, But I'm holding out on you because there's one more verse in this passage that I want to read to you. It's verse 20. Colossians 1.20 And through Him, that is Jesus, to reconcile Himself to all things, with the things on earth and things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. There is a great reality that's revealed in Jesus being this Lord that, Jesus, that David speaks of. And one thing that's so clear and so important is that of being Messiah is His divine salvation. If you look at the life of David, if you look at the life of David, a man after God's own heart. He had a few, he had a lapse or two, didn't he? And when he lapsed, it wasn't just a little thing. It was a big thing. Second Samuel chapter eleven. David sees a man's wife. In fact, he asks about her, finds out that her name is Bathsheba, and she happens to be the wife of one of his most loyal warriors, a man named Uriah the Hittite. But even though he knows his buddy Uriah, who's out fighting a battle right now, is gone, he invites her over. And he sleeps with her. And a little bit later, she sends word that she's pregnant. So number one, adultery. But instead of confessing that, he uh, invites Uriah back from the battlefield, hoping that he's going to come home and sleep with his wife Bathsheba and cover up this pregnancy with the timing of things. So false witness. He tries to get him drunk to go home and do so. So well, that's debauchery. And when that doesn't work, after many attempts, He sends him back to the battlefield with a message to his commanding officer, Joab, with his death warrant pretty much written there. So that's betrayal. And Joab, who's David's general, carries out the sentence. So it makes Joab an accessory to the murder, an abuse of power. Leading others astray. And Uriah, and what the thing, the message says is put Uriah in the place where the battle is the most fierce, and when he's not looking, call a retreat and don't tell him. And it happens. And Uriah dies. That's murder. And then, after that happens, then David marries his fallen. Man's wife that had been killed by his treachery. That's an abomination. And by earthly standards, David had per- committed the perfect crime. Because if nothing else had happened, he wouldn't have been found out. But God has a way of bringing out into the light what is done in the dark especially for a man he says is supposed to be after my own heart. And so God does his revealing. He sends a prophet, Nathan. And Nathan tells David a story that gets his sense of justice or injustice stirred up. Talking about a man who takes a lamb that's precious, that a man that takes a lamb from another man that's very precious to him. It's a pet, if you will. And David, at the end of this story, says to Nathan after listening to it, says, "This man should die." And Nathan rebukes him, says, "Yeah." And you're the man, David. You're the man. That's a moment you want to. You don't want to hear. You're the man. And David. He doesn't try and cover up at that point. He confesses. He repents, but he's still guilty. And if we're going by the Old Testament law of Moses, he should have been killed. He should have been stoned for both adultery and murder. But Nathan says to him, no, you're not going to die and your sin will be forgiven. Now. There were other consequences that played out in his family. But that's very curious, isn't it? How how does that work? I mean, Achan was stoned to death and had his whole whole family, you know, covered up in in a pile of rocks for stealing a little gold bar. How does that work? I mean, if we're going by the law, God... How does that work? This just seems capricious. Are you playing favorites? How is his sin forgiven? You just say the word? And David is a king in need of forgiveness. Just as you and I are people who are in need of forgiveness before a holy God. He needs a Savior. And if you're familiar with Psalm 51, it is David's confession. And the beginning of the psalm says this is a psalm in relation for when David had a relationship with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, forever emblazoned in history. There for all to see. David is the king in need of forgiveness. But Jesus is the Savior who comes to save an ancient king from his sin. To save an ancient king from his sin. So, the beginning of Luke again. The prophecy that comes forth out of the mouth of John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, talking about what John would do and ushering in uh, the Messiah being his forerunner. And he says in verse 77 in chapter 1 of Luke, to give the people the knowledge of salvation, through the forgiveness of their sins. Not through the kicking out of the Romans, but through the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus, the Messiah, will pay for the sins committed of those before he came to the cross. He's going to pay for them, including David. And this is the commentary that Paul makes in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Sins like those of David. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies Those who have faith in Jesus. He did it, let me repeat that, so as to be just, that is to punish sin. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. To bring justification or right standing before a holy God. Jesus pays David's sin of Debt of forgiveness on the cross. And if Psalm 51 is the confession, then David's Psalm 32 is his celebration. Listen to this. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no Deceit By faith David took Nathan The word of the Lord revealed through him At his word That his sin would be Forgiven That it would be paid for So again I want to point out That it was pretty obvious David's sin was pretty heinous right? From an earthly standpoint Going, if, if that's what David does to his friends, I don't want that guy around me. That's horrible on an earthly level, right? But here's the point it's not beyond the Savior's forgiveness, it's not beyond the forgiveness of what God has done in Christ. Again, we probably regard these sins as pretty heinous, pretty horrible. And maybe somehow in your thinking you think, I have gone too far. There's no way that God can forgive me for what I've done. Because it's too horrible. It's too disloyal. It's too hard-hearted. And this is evidence that God's grace reaches beyond that. I think if David were a writer of the epistles in the Old Testament, he would say of himself, no, I'm the chief of sinners. And yet God's grace reaches to him. That's what I want you to know. That in Christ, God both is just to punish sin, He's he's punished your sin in Christ. But number two, He is also just to justify you through faith in Him. That's an amazing thing. That is amazing grace. That's something I want you to take home from this this message today. Number two, what I appreciate about what David says here in this psalm is he's honest before God. He's honest about his sin. Look at verse 2 again here of of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know why he says there's no deceit? Because he's not trying to fool God. It it really wasn't that bad. He's not trying to, to fool others. Again, David writes about his sin in Psalm 51. and He's not trying to fool himself. Yes, it was horrid. It was heinous. And that man deserved to die. And that man was me. But God sent His Son to take my place. I'm sure David didn't fully know that when he wrote this psalm. But by faith, he saw that God was going to take care of it. Number three, salvation comes by faith. Salvation comes by faith. Again, reading verse 26 of Romans 3. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus comes to a society where people are trying to justify themselves. By being good enough. By knowing the Scriptures well enough. By keeping up appearances. Because that's what was going on for the most part. People knew in their hearts they were, they were falling short of the, the Word of God, but they were keeping up appearances. They were fooling themselves and fooling thought they were fooling God. But salvation does not come in our own hand. If it were true, then Jesus wouldn't have to come. We need that Lord just as David needed that Lord who sits at the right hand of God to save us. That's what we need. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in that Lord who lived this life perfectly? Who went to the cross and paid a penalty you or I couldn't pay? And then he rose from the dead to conquer a a foe we couldn't conquer. And now he is risen and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Have you put your faith there? Not in yourself, but in him what he's done. But not only that, have you given him permission to be Lord in your life, in your heart? Not just the academic knowledge of knowing what he did, but saying, now Lord, come and take residence in my heart. And be Lord. Actually reign and rule in my life. Have your way in me. And when I fall and stumble, I will ask your forgiveness, which is readily available. But have you done that? Have you asked him to be Lord and take up lordship in your life? And maybe you're saying, yeah, I I have. And that's awesome. And that's great. Here's the last thing I want to bring out in this passage here. Remember, this is just one of like 400 prophecies in Scripture to who the Messiah was going to be and what was going to happen. And God brings it about, He makes it happen. You know what the odds are or the probability of just eight promises in Scripture about who the Messiah was going to be taking place? Let me just give you a, a picture. Take the state of Texas, okay? Fill it with Eisenhower silver dollars about this big, okay? Two feet deep. And on one of those silver dollars, you put a red X. And you drop it in the state of Texas somewhere. And then you send somebody out blindfolded to find it and they get one chance to reach down and find that one silver dollar that's marked with an X. It's one in, I don't even know what the number is. It's one in 17 zeros after that. That's the probability. But God brought it about. He made it happen. He brought that descendant of David to come, to live this life, to die and to rise from the dead, and now sit at the right hand of God the Father. And that should encourage us. And that should encourage us as we wait for His return. That should encourage us as we wait for His return. You know, the people of God were searching the Old Testament Scriptures to see what Messiah would be. And even today, it's right for us to continue to search the Scriptures to see what will take place before he returns. I don't think we're going to get it all right, but to be ready and waiting and know ultimately that God is going to be faithful and bring him back at the right time. So we can sing, come thou long-expected Jesus, not for Christmas, but for eternity. That can be the hope that we have in him. A one whom King David calls Lord. And he is worthy. So with that, I'd like to invite the worship team up. And I'll close this in a word of prayer here. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for um, just what you're trying to reveal to us as who you are as Messiah. And just as you were that that seed that God spoke about way back when he promised it to David, you're going to come for us as our Lord and bring all of history under your feet and under your control. And it will be a blessed existence and experience. We're grateful, Lord. We're grateful for what you have revealed. Continue to make us people who are looking to you, who are walking with you, and have our eyes set on you, Lord Jesus, the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen.